amen. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We want to continue along the lines of uh, speaking on the Holy Ghost as we have for a number of weeks, many weeks at, uh, at this present time. And one of the things that, uh, that we've focused on to some degree is uh, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 1, he said, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. That's not a real exact translation from the original Greek. The word spiritual literally means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So he's saying, Paul is saying, by the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost himself does not want us to be ignorant of him. But there's a lot of ignorance in the body of Christ about the Holy Spirit. There may be more ignorance about the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ than any other subject. If anything is beating it out as the, the top area of ignorance, it's got to be close. And um, the things about the Holy Spirit, one of the things about the Holy Spirit that, that just fascinates me is the... Um, the very small amount of information that Jesus gave about him. And after that, he left us at the direction of the Holy Spirit to, to understand on our own. I, I, let me point out some things to prove the point I'm making or to explain it a little further. Matthew chapter 16, right toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said unto them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, folks, these things fascinate me, especially Jesus' interaction with his disciples. We know very clearly that about halfway, not quite halfway into Jesus' earthly ministry, not quite halfway into the three years that he ministered here on the earth, he gave authority to the disciples, first to the 12 and then to the 70, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He gave them authority over sickness and disease. They're used to casting out devils. They're used to healing the sick. The, uh, the, the few times, one time, one major event where they were not able to cast the devil out of a little boy, they couldn't figure out why. In other words, they're used to having success in delivering people and, and ministering the, the power of God by the Holy Spirit. It had to be the Holy Spirit by which these things took place when Jesus delegated his authority over sickness and disease to the 12 and then to the 70. And the Bible tells us they came back rejoicing because they got results. They got results. It astonished me many years ago when I realized that the disciples were not out preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, if they were preaching Jesus the Messiah, that he's the Christ, the one that's sent from God, then what is he asking them? Who do the men say that I am and who do you say I am? I can understand the first part. He might be interested to find out the different ideas that people might have. But the guys that are with him day after day after day, the guys that have turned uh, their, their business lives 
upside down to be with him and to follow him around. The, the people that he is in charge of, taking care of, providing food for, and lodging and taking care of their every need, basically. Not just the 12, but the 72. Most uh, Bible scholars uh, agree that there were about 100 people, maybe 120 people that were following Jesus around just about everywhere that he went. Now, some people would come and go, as you could well understand. Not everybody was willing or able to turn their lives upside down and follow Jesus full time, but the 12 did. And so, when the disciples are asked, who do men say that I am? They give him the list of things that they've heard. But then when he asks them, who do you say I am? Peter answers and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, how did God reveal it to him? It had to be by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost was the working agent, the agent of power here on the earth, even on Jesus. Jesus wasn't healing the sick or performing miracles because he was the Son of God. He was doing these mighty works because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. And he said over and over again, when people would talk about the miracles, he said, I'm not the one doing them. Now, he was obviously the one that they were being done through. But the point that he's trying to make, the thing that he's trying to, to identify and clarify, is that he's not doing these things because he's the son of God. He's doing these things because he was a man anointed of the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, if Jesus was healing the sick and doing miracles because he was the son of God, then why would he have any need to be anointed of the Holy Ghost? Why did the miracles start after he was anointed of the Holy Ghost when John baptized him in the Jordan River? And everybody that was there bear record of the, the voice that came from heaven. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then everybody saw something come from heaven and land on him like a bird would fly out of the sky and land on your shoulder. And it remained there upon him. Why would that be necessary if Jesus is going to heal the sick and perform miracles as the son of God? And Jesus was just as much the Son of God at age 25 as he was at age 30. Why wasn't he doing miracles at 25 or 26 or even 29? Why did it take the, the anointing of the Holy Ghost for, him to, for his miracle and healing and miracle ministry to begin? Because it was that anointing or that power of the Holy Ghost that was upon him that enabled him to do the miracles. Not because he was the Son of God. So when Jesus says, that God has revealed this to Peter, that had to be by the Holy Ghost as well. Verse 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, folks, I grew up thinking that everything that Jesus did was to prove that he was the Christ. I was of the understanding, certainly not biblical understanding, but the way I was taught in Sunday school and the way I grew up thinking and, and expecting that things were was that Jesus empowered his disciples with healing power, delivering power, so that, he could, so that they could convince others that Jesus was the Messiah. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have any doubt that there were a lot of things that the disciples said as they were preaching the gospel of the kingdom about Jesus, talking about the things that he was doing and the people he was helping and the, the miracles that were taking place. I have no doubt that they were talking about those things. Who wouldn't? But Jesus was showing the will of the Father to heal. Jesus was showing the will of the Father to, to deliver. That's what Jesus wanted them to focus on. That's what Jesus wanted people to believe and understand. Not that he was the Christ. Not that he was even anointed with healing power or miracle power. But that it was the will of God for miracles and healings and deliverances. Because God is good. So he charged them not to tell anybody that he was the Christ. Now notice verse 21. From that time forth. In other words, what was left of his earthly ministry, those three years of ministering here on the earth before he went to the cross. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples, not to the world, not to the crowds, but to his disciples. He began to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now, folks, if that scripture is true, if we don't have anything else, which we do, but if that scripture is true, that scripture alone should have given the disciples understanding of what was happening as Jesus was arrested, beaten in Pilate's court, brought to the cross, killed, and eventually resurrected, three days later resurrected from the dead. It indicates to me that this was not just a one-time thing that Jesus told them that it might have slipped away from them. But when it says from that time forth, he began to show them plainly. He's not talking parables anymore. He's giving them clear-cut information about his death, burial, and resurrection. Clear-cut. It says even that he would rise again the third day. There should have been no reason whatsoever for the disciples to wonder what was going on when Jesus was captured, arrested, beaten, and even hanging on the cross. If he told them the truth, which he always did, if he told them the truth, then they should have known. And apparently he thought that they should have known too because when he is raised from the dead and they don't believe him or believe the reports that he's been risen or raised from the dead, that he is risen and has been raised from the dead. He upbraids them for their hardness of heart. So he expected that they would understand. Now the rest of the story tells us that Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, Lord, this, this is not the way it's going to be. And Jesus turns and says to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the, those that are of men. So just as Peter was inspired by the Holy Ghost to declare that Jesus was the Christ... Now, just a short time later, Peter's inspired to speak the devil's words, at least according to what Jesus identified. Now, folks, remember that the Bible tells us that if Satan knew what the plan of salvation entailed, he wouldn't have influenced people to kill Jesus, to have him crucified. If he had known that that was part of the plan of redemption, and that there was no other way for this to be done, this redemption, to be accomplished. He wouldn't have inspired people to do what they did. Which tells us the devil didn't know everything. 
There were times where Jesus said, I'll not have any, any more to say to you now because the evil one cometh and has nothing in me. So apparently there were things that Jesus didn't say or there were things that he didn't talk about a lot because he didn't want the devil to hear it. He didn't want the devil to gain the information that he was lacking. Now turn with me to another place. Look with me to John chapter 14. We've talked a lot about these three chapters, John 14, 15, 16, and even 17 really. But the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters, John gives us insight into things that happened at the Last Supper that the rest of the gospel writers don't tell us. Let me remind you as well, we've talked about this a lot. Let me remind you as well that these things weren't written. John didn't write his gospel till he was in his 90s, maybe 95, 96 years old. This would have been around, we, we understand from historical documents that John was born just about zero AD so if these things were written in 96 AD somewhere around there that would have been about what John, John's age was now folks Paul died in probably 66 AD Peter died about the same time within a year of that same time certainly John was the last of the apostles that lived he's the one that lived the longest he's the one that stretched the furthest into the church age and John gives us what looks to me like a tying up of loose ends in his gospel. He is uh, credited with telling us different healing events, different works that Jesus performed that the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, nor Luke, gave us. He's the one that identifies this great information that Jesus shared with the disciples at the Last Supper. Most of that information was about the Holy Ghost. And some of the things that he says about the Holy Ghost, we take for granted because we can read all the four Gospels together. But the things that John tells us about that last night that Jesus went, spent with his disciples, Paul didn't know that. He wouldn't have known that unless he heard John tell it. That's the only way that he would have gained that information. And Paul's own writings indicate that he had very little to do with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. There were only a couple of times, a couple of events or situations where he went to Jerusalem and showed himself to them and that they had much interaction at all. That makes sense because Paul was sent to the Gentiles just as the apostles were sent to the Jews. So even when Paul writes these things to the Corinthians, imploring the Corinthian church, along with all the rest of us, to not be ignorant about the Holy Ghost, there were probably things about the Holy Ghost that, John, that Paul was ignorant of that John tells us. That doesn't mean he didn't have the information that John would have told. The Holy Ghost may have revealed that to him himself. But I love how the Bible identifies and provides these things for us so that we not be left out. Well, John 14 starts with Jesus talking about going away. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now, folks, I want you to notice something about that sentence structure, that where I am you may be, not where I'm going you may be. See, Jesus is talking about going to the Father. He's not saying that we'll go with him. He's saying that we'll be where he is. Well, where he is is in union with God the Father while he's here on the earth. He's talking about us having, the church having the same relationship with God the Father that he has within himself. He goes on to say that I won't have to um, ask the Father for you because he loves you and he'll hear your prayers just like he hears mine. So he's talking about the new birth. He's talking about the relationship that comes as a result of the new birth. It says, and whether I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said unto him, now get this. I know we make a lot of fun of Thomas and give him a hard time. But there are things that he said that are instructive for us. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, clearly they're not identifying what the, we just read in Matthew 16 about Jesus beginning to plainly teach them clearly spell it out for them what's going to happen concerning his death burial and resurrection when he starts about going away, starts talking about going away to the father the disciples freak out what do you mean you're going away if you're going away we won't see you anymore now i understand their concern in this i understand because of the dependence they've had on jesus the thought that, or the idea that he's going away from them i get it i'd be upset too as we all would but clearly they're not connecting the dots. Clearly they're not remembering the things that Jesus began to clearly teach him. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip joins in and says, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Well, here Jesus is saying the Father in him is the one responsible for the works. How is the Father in him? By the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Again, he's talking about the relationship that we can have because of where he's going. Or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, folks, if there's anybody on the planet that should understand that, it should be these 12 apostles or disciples that haven't yet really become the apostles. But if there's anybody on the planet that should understand that, it's these 12 men. Because they've already had the authority over sickness and disease delivered to them, or delegated to them, I should say. They're accustomed to healing sickness. They're accustomed to delivering people from satanic oppression. They're accustomed to using and utilizing the power of God that was delegated unto them. Now when Jesus starts talking about he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. 
if you were one of those 12 and had the experiences in the power of God that the Bible tells us they had, what would you think? What would you be focused on? Would you not at least in some way expect that Jesus is talking about an endowment of power? Not because he's here on the earth, but because he's going to the Father. But they don't get it. Skip with me over to John chapter 16, verse 17. I'm going to start in verse 16 to get a little bit of context here. He's still talking about the Holy Ghost and the things that will happen after he goes. A little while and you shall not see me. And again a little while and you shall see me. Because I go into the Father. He's talking about when I go into the Father, there are going to be three days that you won't be able to see me. Because my spirit will go to pay the price for eternal salvation and eternal life. But then a little while after that, three days specifically, you'll see me again. He's talking about his resurrection. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me. And because I go unto the Father. What does all this mean? So clearly they haven't connected the dots. They haven't taken the things that he's plainly taught them according to Matthew chapter 16. They're still not expecting the work, of the, redemption, uh, the work of redemption to be accomplished or the Messiah's work to be accomplished through death and resurrection. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he says. We don't know what he's talking about. These are people that have been with him for three years. They've heard everything he said. They've seen everything that he's done. They were present when he plainly began to teach them and tell them about what was going to happen. And they're clueless. Now why are they clueless? Are they clueless just because they're unsaved? What reason would there be for them not to remember back what he was talking to them about in Matthew 16? Did that not make such an impact upon them that they would even remember it? Or be able to, to recall it? This is the part that bewilders me. I have no idea. Of course, I'm coming from an advantaged position because my eyes have been opened to the truth of the word through the new birth and the baptism of the Holy Ghost, as we all have. So it's easy for us to look back and, and wag our fingers at them or shake our heads and say, what's wrong with these people? But for goodness sakes, what is wrong with these people? They still don't have it. Verse, six, verse 19, now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, do you inquire among yourselves of that I said? A little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall turn into joy. A woman when she is in travail has sorrow because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man takes from you. And he starts talking about the relationship with the Father. Now, folks, after this, in uh, 
chapter 17, it tells us about when Jesus begins to pray. This prayer, according to John, is not on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. This prayer apparently is where they're still in the upper room. I'm sorry, not the upper room, but the, uh, the room where they're celebrating the Passover. According to John's chronology, it's after the prayer in, in uh, John 17 that they go to the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane. But I want to interject something. We know how the... the we know how the Bible relates the story to us. How that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and asked his disciples to pray with him for an hour and they fell asleep. You remember that? Well, Luke chapter 22... Verse 45, it tells us about when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It says, and when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. They are so sad. They are so grieved about Jesus' explanation about leaving them and going to the Father. They finally understand that he's saying he's going to be killed. And Luke identifies, he's not an eyewitness, of course. He wasn't part of the group. But Luke identifies that that grief is what put them to sleep. It left Jesus alone to do the praying. Whatever praying is going to take place, he's doing it alone. You remember the anguish that he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed. The Bible says he was sweating great drops of blood. And an angel appeared and strengthened him. But when the angel appeared and strengthened him, it wasn't to release him from the burden. Because it says he went back and prayed more earnestly after that. Now, more earnestly than sweating drops of blood, I'm not sure what that is. But it's something that we, it's something that's told to us at least. Well, the end of the story comes. Jesus is raised from the dead. The word comes to the disciples. Peter and John run to the sepulcher. Peter goes in and finds the tomb empty. Mary is told by the angels and then even Jesus himself to go tell the apostles that he's alive. Now let's turn over to Acts chapter 1. Don't forget what we're doing here, folks. We're identifying the work of the Holy Spirit from the beginning of the church. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Luke's the author, and he said, The former treatise I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's talking about the gospel that bears his name. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. Folks, Jesus didn't just appear, say hello, and that was it. He appeared unto them. He lived with them for 40 days. Being seen of them for 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. 
When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? What is wrong with these people? They're looking for a physical kingdom. They're still, after they're born again, Jesus has appeared to them. We know the story in John chapter 20. Jesus appears in the midst of them and says, Peace be unto you. He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Ghost. And they change. Where they were huddled up behind closed doors, afraid of the Jews, the same ones that crucified Jesus, they're afraid that they'll come after his disciples next. After Jesus appears to them and they confess him as their Lord, Luke chapter 24 tells us they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple worshiping and praising God. They're not behind closed doors anymore. They're filled with joy and they have a boldness about them. They know what they know now. They know that Jesus is alive. And it takes away the fear from them, the fear of the Jews from them. So the disciples are still unclear and unsure of what God's plan is. Jesus answers and says, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, folks, remember, the Passover is 50 days before Pentecost. Jesus spends three days in the heart of the earth, literally the lowest part of hell, paying the price for mankind's sin. So for 40 of the 47 days left before, until Pentecost, he's alive, he's with them, Luke says that on one occasion there were over a crowd of over 500 people that saw that Jesus was risen from the dead. This is not in secret. This is not hidden behind closed doors. This is not God putting a veil over people's eyes to keep them from seeing that Jesus is alive. Everybody knows. That doesn't matter to everybody, but everybody knows. But when he says in verse 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. What would you think is one of the twelve? When Jesus is talking about power, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Remember the power that they've experienced, the healing and delivering power of God, was upon them because Jesus had delegated it to them. Now Jesus is saying the power of the Holy Ghost himself is going to come on you. Not just a part of what he had when he was here on the earth. But the power of the Holy Ghost himself. Now what did that mean to the disciples? I don't want to ask what it means to us because so few of us have any experience in the power of the Holy Ghost. The real power of the Holy Ghost. That it creates wrong understanding and a lot of wrong teaching in the body of Christ which is the very reason and at least one of the reasons main reasons why there's so much ignorance about who the Holy Ghost is and what he does but these were guys that had handled the power of God before they're the only ones that had 
experience that power. And so when Jesus says, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, but wait here in Jerusalem. If my math is correct, it's going to be about a week that they're going to be waiting in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost is poured out upon them. But notice that Jesus doesn't say anything more than you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. He doesn't explain the Holy Ghost to them. He's already done that in, at the Last Supper. He's told them. He's explained to them. He's instructed them that the Holy Ghost would testify of him, dwell in them, bring all things to their remembrance, whatsoever Jesus has said, and show them things to come. So what would you be looking for if you were one of them? I'd be looking for power. Chapter 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, again, about a week later from the time that we just read in chapter 1, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. There's 120 of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation of heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Folks, there's two ways to look at this. It could be that the disciples were speaking in tongues in their own language, in the language of these people, or it could be that they were speaking in tongues in a heavenly language and the Lord did a miracle in their ears to cause them to hear and understand what was being said in their own tongue. I believe that was the way that it was. I don't believe that they, when they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, I don't believe they were speaking other languages. I believe they were speaking a heavenly language. But God performed a miracle in and among the people, how that they heard in their own language them speak the wonderful works of God. And it goes on to describe how many of these different languages they were hearing in. How hear we, verse 8, how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes, Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Folks, signs and wonders make people wonder. And they're wondering. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them. Now, I'm going to read through this. It's not a long sermon, but I want you to hear the sermon that Peter preaches. Remember that Peter and John, in chapter 3 of Acts, after getting the man at the beautiful gate of the temple, the crippled man healed, they're taken before the council. And among other things, it says the council took notice of them 
that they were ignorant and unlearned men. In other words, the people that had the schooling and the training concerning the Old Testament and the prophets, the old, what we know of as the Old Testament, what is called in the Scriptures the Law and the Prophets, saw that Peter and John didn't have any of the training or schooling that they had in the Law and the Prophets. So here's an ignorant man's sermon. You men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in, in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy now the days that he's talking about is the church age primarily but he covers all of Joel's prophecy that goes to the end of the tribulation period and on my sons and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke this is tribulation stuff the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood tribulation stuff before that great and notable day of the Lord come. The day of the Lord coming is not Jesus coming back for the church. He's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about Jesus coming back in all of his glory at the end of the tribulation period. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Folks, that calling on the name of the Lord goes from the time that Jesus was raised from the dead to the end of the tribulation. That's the only time for men to be saved. After that, nobody can be. So when Peter is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he's got to be saying things he doesn't even know. And what does Peter know about the Joel, uh, prophecy of Joel anyway? I doubt if that was a topic of conversation between him and John and James, his partners in the fishing business, while they were out casting the nets. I don't see any place where Jesus taught them about the law and the prophets. I don't, certainly don't see any place where Jesus told him about Joel's prophecy. How does Peter know this stuff? It had to be the revelation of the Spirit at, at a spontaneous moment in time. But he starts his sermon telling about Joel's prophecy. You men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. You know about Jesus doing healings and miracles. We don't have to explain those to you or tell you the stories. You saw them yourselves. Him being delivered by the, by the determinate counsel. And foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, folks, he's not talking to the religious leaders. These are devout men that have come from every part of the earth to the Feast of Pentecost. So he's not talking about them as the leaders of the Jews or the religious leaders. He's explaining that all of mankind chose Jesus to be crucified. 
him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. Now he's going to start talking about David. David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known unto me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Peter seems to be well versed in the Psalms of David. How? He's never been taught these things. These are not things that were taught in the synagogues in that day. He may have heard these things read somewhere in the synagogue in times past. But this has got to be revelation of the Holy Ghost. Well, remember what Jesus said. You shall receive power unto me. Or you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost is poured out. And you shall be witnesses unto me. Well, he's witnessing. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but he said himself, The Lord shall say unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make thy foes the footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and unto your children and to all them that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, folks, I'm trying to put myself, and I encourage you to do the same thing. Put yourself in the position of the disciples. When Jesus says, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, I'm not exactly sure what they were expecting to, uh, to experience. But they had to be expecting something. But the something that took place was that they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now Jesus said they'd receive power, but what they got is tongues. Jesus saying that when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall receive power. But when the Holy Ghost came upon them, what they received was tongues. You think that made any of them wonder? What are these tongues for? There's not a lot of information in the Old Testament about tongues. And Jesus never mentioned tongues when he was telling the disciples about the Holy Ghost. Not a word. Isaiah 28 verse 11. 
says, with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak unto these people. And this will be the rest and the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. That's really the only thing the Old Testament says about tongues. Not much to build a doctrine off of, is there? But when the Holy Ghost comes upon them, they begin speaking with other tongues. Jesus said they'd receive power, but what they had was tongues. We've seen in the scriptures the five times in the book of Acts where individuals or groups of people were filled with the Spirit. In every case, either specifically or implied, tongues accompanied the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, clearly, if tongues, and, and Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, he said, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God, for no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries, divine secrets, another translation says. Verse 4 says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself or empowers himself, strengthens himself. So Paul is telling us in the New Testament, He's telling us that tongues activate power. But what kind of power? Well, it has to be the power of the Holy Ghost. But you know as well as I do that over 99% of the time that we speak with other tongues, we don't feel any power. If we felt power by speaking in other tongues, you wouldn't have to encourage people to do it. You wouldn't have to encourage people that are already filled with the Spirit to utilize what has been given to them of God. But the majority of Christians don't speak in tongues even every day. I'm talking about the majority of spirit-filled Christians. They don't even speak with tongues just once a day. Yet it's the source of power, if the Bible is to be believed, it's the source of power to be witnesses. Now, folks, was there much of anything, and I, I, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, I'm not, I don't want to be critical or well, I just don't want to say this the wrong way. I don't want the wrong attitude to be behind it. But what Peter preached to them was, was great information. But I doubt that it was even the best sermon that Peter ever preached. Certainly this was his first one since Jesus was raised from the dead. But what was it about that sermon? It wasn't long. It talked about Joel's prophecy. It talked about David. Finally, it identifies that Jesus was the Christ and is risen from the dead. Glad he got that in there. But was there anything so sound or so impressive about that sermon that you would automatically expect 3,000 people to give their hearts to the Lord? If it's there, I don't see it. Well, what made the difference? The thing that made the difference was that the people's hearts were pricked. In other words, it's another way of saying that their eyes were, in, were opened or enlightened. And folks, that's what the Holy Ghost power does when we utilize it by speaking in tongues. The power of the Spirit gives extra strength to the words that we would normally say. It might not even give us additional words or new words or a new way to say something. But empower, it empowers the words that we speak. Luke chapter 22 tells us the story. I'm sorry, it's Luke chapter 24. 
tells us the story of how on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, two of the disciples, wasn't part of the 12, so it must have been part of the 70 or the part of the, the group that makes up the 120 at Pentecost. Two of these guys are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The background of the foundation of the context of the story is that they have been to, Peter and John have been to the sepulcher. They found that it was empty, but nothing else has taken place or transpired. So prior to Jesus appearing to them where they were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews in John chapter 20, these two guys, these two disciples are walking down the road and they're talking about Jesus and talking about the fact that the sepulcher is empty and wondering what's going on and so forth. And Jesus joins himself to them. And he asks him, what are you talking about? And they explain to them, to him, because they don't recognize him. It says their eyes were holding or restrained from recognizing who he was. And so they said, well, this Jesus that was crucified, and Jesus pretends that he doesn't know what they're talking about. And so they start explaining some of this stuff. And then Jesus says, oh, foolish and slow of heart. Didn't you know that this was necessary for the Christ to have endured and experienced for the benefit of mankind? And then it says from Moses to the end of the Old Testament, he began to explain to them all the scriptures that talk about the Messiah. I would love to have heard the tapes of that seminar, wouldn't you? And they come to Emmaus, and Jesus acts like he's going to keep walking, keep going to another destination. But they wouldn't let him go. They said, no, you have to come with us, eat, at least eat dinner with us. And so they sit down to eat something. And at the moment that Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes were opened. And they recognized that it was him. And then he disappeared. And the things that they said about that afterward has had such an impact on me for a long time. They said, did not our hearts burn within us when he was expounding the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn within us? I, I can relate to that a little bit with my time with Brother Hagen. I loved being in Brother Hagen's services. I, I spent several years in everything, every service that he did. But the place that I got more from him than any other place were after these crusade meetings at night when he'd sit around with the crew. Most of us were Bible school students at the time. And he'd sit around and just talk about the things of God. It wasn't that he would tell new stories that I hadn't heard before. There were probably just a couple of times where he told stories that you haven't heard before, either through his tapes or maybe me or somebody else. And I'm bad about taking his stories and using them because they're instructive. But me telling his stories is not the same as him telling his stories because they were his. They were his experiences. See, I can tell you about his experience. And it may give us some great information about the word and about God. But when he told his stories, there was an unction to it. There was a, well, it was part of what he was called to do. Part of what he was called to do is raise up ministers. 
And so when we were around the table, listening to him talk about the things of God and listening to his stories, there was a power behind the words that he spoke. There was an anointing on the stories that he was relating that I can't duplicate. Nobody else can either. Because they were his stories. John said this, writing at the end of the century, around the same time that he wrote the gospel that bears his name and the book of Revelation. He said that we had an unction from the Holy One and we know all things. That's 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20. Then he goes further a little bit in verse 27. He says, but the unction, the unction, the word, uh, I'm sorry, the word unction in verse 20 is the same as the word anointing in verse 27. But the anointing that you have within you is from God and you don't need anybody to teach you. Now, he's not saying we don't need teachers in the body of Christ. He's saying that it doesn't take anybody else to tell you what's right or wrong, what's God or what's not. That anointing, that unction that you have from the Holy One. It guides you into all truth, as John said in John 16, verse 13. It'll show you the difference between right and wrong. Folks, when we speak in tongues, when we spend time speaking in tongues, we're edifying ourselves. We're building ourselves up spiritually. We're winding the spring or recharging our battery, whichever way you want to look at it. So that what we might normally do has a supernatural and a powerful element to it that it wouldn't have if we don't spend time speaking in tongues. And whatever you're called to do, whether it's ministry or whether it's business or whether it's homemaker, whatever you're called to do, the power of the Holy Ghost will enable you to do it better and make you a witness for Jesus as you do it. No matter how simple it is, no matter how mundane it may seem, no matter how natural the action itself may be, any natural action can be empowered with the anointing power of God and glorify Jesus. It may make a way for you to have an open door to talk to somebody that you wouldn't be able to talk to otherwise. It may be something that draws somebody's attention to you, to the fact that God is with you in the work that you're doing, even if it doesn't seem to be a spiritual work or spiritual effort. There's an anointing for each and every one of us in whatever we're given to do in this life. And we access that power by and through speaking in tongues. Don't let a day go by without using the gift that the Holy Ghost has given you. And edify yourself through speaking in tongues. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much. We can now see what the disciples couldn't. We see how important it was for you to go away. We see how important it was for you to offer your life and be raised again the third day that we might be children of God and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Open our eyes, Lord. Holy Spirit, we recognize the prayers that you have given us to pray for ourselves and for others. And in so doing, we thank you for giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding are enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of your calling 
And what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers? Lord Jesus, just as you open the two disciples' eyes, spiritual eyes, on the road to Emmaus, we pray that every day our eyes would be opened more and more and more. That we would see and know your will for our lives. That we would recognize that which you have given us to be witnesses unto you and for you. And that we would know the power. The power of the Holy Ghost that has come upon us because we've been filled with the Spirit. We pray these things in all earnestness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.